Welcome to Lead with Kindness, our podcast about how leading with kindness is not just doable, but essential to having a healthy workplace and better business results. And as to why I started this podcast, it's really because on the picket lines during the Writers Guild strike, I spoke to so many other writers who were longing for some kind of sea change in how the culture of Hollywood operates. And today we're going to specifically talk about not just ideals of leading with kindness, but what happens when you come into a situation that's already not kind? How can we hold each other accountable? How can we find a different way forward? To discuss that with me, we have Andrea Thornton-Bolden, most recently the co-showrunner of Ring Shout for Netflix, and also somebody who I worked with for many years on Nancy Drew on the writing staff, and Malik Muzan, who, among other things, in addition to being a talented writer who we worked with on Nancy Drew, is the vice consul for creative and tech at the British Consulate in Los Angeles. So he comes from a managerial position as well. So some of the episodes on this podcast, Andre and Malik, have talked about leading from this really empowered and ideal situation. Like as a showrunner, I can set a humane tone with the welcome email I send to the writers I hire. As number one on the call sheet when Kennedy and Tian from Nancy Drew and Tom Swift were on, they were able to include people and set an example of kindness on set because they were empowered to do so from the jump. When Kristen Keeley was hiring for the line producer on Tom Swift and she crewed up, she let them know that this was a place where kindness was a priority and inclusion was a necessity and people would be encouraged to train new talent. Or when Ruben Garcia arrives to direct a show or when he's a producing director, he can extend a lot of grace to department heads to invite them into creative decision making. But... So often we find ourselves in situations, we just globally, people, find ourselves in situations where the dynamic is already dysfunctional. Or if it's a toxic environment and people want to course correct, that's awesome, but how do we even acknowledge things that have already happened? How do we restore trust after it's been broken, especially if we're not necessarily the person in charge who's supposed to be doing that? This is a very layered question. So, um, Andre, I especially wanted to have you on to discuss this because when the WGA strike ended and there was this gathering of 6,000 writers, you know, celebrating and cheering in the Palladium downtown, one of the things that they did was an open mic. And you went up to the mic at this giant meeting and talked about how on the picket lines, many writers ended up having to walk next to the very people who had psychologically abused them. So Mm. I'd love for you to talk about that. Absolutely. So we work in a very crazy business, but one of the nuttiest things about our field in particular is that because somebody can write really well, you give them a multi-million dollar business to run that employs hundreds of people and no leadership or management training whatsoever. I feel like in any other field, that would be cuckoo bananas (laughs) because organizational training and leadership, it's a skill. It's a learned skill. And so what ends up happening is that being a showrunner is such a high pressure cooker situation that like any high pressure cooker situation in life, it's going to bring out the best and the worst in you. So if you haven't done the work or if you just don't have the tools, i.e. the training, you are going to project your nonsense onto other people, specifically the people you work for. So... When I was speaking to my fellow guild members that evening, I was saying, you all, this now that we have 
gotten through the strike and gotten these incredible gains, I have seen what we are capable of. If you had asked me a year ago, is it possible for that sea change that you mentioned, Melinda, I would have been like, "Mm, I don't think so. But having seen our ability to organize, to come together, to find solidarity and camaraderie with each other across the hierarchical lines, I'm like, wait a second. Now y'all have shown me what you can do. Mm -hmm. So now I know that anything is possible if we are all willing to be aligned and intentional. So if that's the case, (laughs) then I think we need to start getting very intentional about how we treat each other. We have made the companies pay us what they owe us. Now it's time for us to consider what we owe each other. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then Malik, Kind of bringing into this conversation, not just the dynamics that are very obvious to any outside observer in a room, maybe somebody's yelling, maybe somebody's getting ignored, maybe somebody's getting belittled and shamed while their writing is being critiqued. You, this is off the top of my head, things that have happened. <laughs> but Malik, there's also something that uh, some audience members may not be as well versed in, the subject of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? And I asked you beforehand if you'd be comfortable, so thank you. No, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and Andrea made some great points just about Basically, culture gets made, um, whether you, you know, it just happens. And if you, in a good organization or w- with people who have good management, they are a part of that creation, that process. But I've actually been in organizations where, and it's so funny that it happens even in the private sector or public sector, where people fell upwards, they get promoted into roles that they're good in this one part of the job, but then they are taking on managing a team. And in that sense, the kind of microaggressions like I face, I mean, the the piece about microaggressions is that like, in my mind, they can be just as painful as the macroaggressions. Like it's almost like death by a thousand cuts. It's these small moments where someone says a joke or something offhand and doesn't think, doesn't have any self-awareness, doesn't think about how that might impact someone or what they might be going through. I've had moments where like, I was, you know, we see a rapper, a very famous LA rapper had died. And it's funny that we were talking about our hair before we came in. Kind of have a twist right now, but I had braids and it was just after a rapper died. And someone in management was like, oh, did you get those braids because that rapper died? And I was like, well, no, I just got it because I wanted it. But that was like a small moment that like really stuck with me. And, and even after that, I sometimes second guess whether I want to wear my hair a different way when I go into work. So I feel like microaggressions, we think of them as small things, but I think they build into bigger things and they stay with us. They last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the language that we use, I'm sort of randomly thinking about well, the showrunner meeting that I went to after the contract was finalized. And a number of showrunners got up to the microphone and they were asking questions about, you know, scenarios and leadership. And they were like, well, what if a showrunner does this? And then he doesn't realize this. And I'm like, could we not use a different program? He or she, could we not say they? Could we not be more gender expansive? Mm -hmm. And it really frustrates me when I see that people so clearly only imagine a showrunner as a man. Mm -hmm. Let's just start there. But also that they're not thinking about the impact that their language has. My brother does a math conference and he was sending me the instructions for folks at the airport. And I suggested that instead of saying, you need to walk to the BART station, could you say you need to make your way to the BART station? Not everybody's going to be walking necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, just like use a language that is more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we've talked about some of the things that go wrong, and we definitely could go on and on for the entire half hour (laughs) about things that have gone wrong and that are hurtful and diminishing and demoralizing and really lead people to not do their best work, to shrink inside themselves, to try to get small and not take up space and be invisible, because that's what they're being told to do on many different levels. How do we hold people accountable when that happens? How do we even raise our hand and say, this is happening. This just happened. Okay. <laughs> I, 
The one thing I think, which it seems so simple and easy, is just to actually, like, say what happened Mm -hmm. and to, like, unequivocally own it and to own the fault or own the thing that you did. And I think it doesn't happen as much as you would expect. Because I think people will tip around it or, like, in my example, like, they'll say, oh, I was just joking or I was just doing this or, oh, you didn't understand it or you you took, you know, or you're just being too sensitive. And just to say that, like, you know, this thing happened and I was harmed um, and... You know, these are op. There's different ways in which we can like remedy this. Maybe it's about you know you just apologizing and then it's over. Maybe it's about I know that you're going to be taking this class because I feel like you're not understanding. You know, you're being very blind to the um, people you have in the office and aren't speaking to like different identities and things like that. So you need to like do management class and things like that. But I think just like you know, I went to South Africa, Africa and they have this like truth and reconciliation committee, which is how what they dealt with after apartheid. And so much of that is literally just like saying what happened and having victims and people who suffered tell their stories Mm. and then from there trying to find peace or reconcile with it. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's not always easy to do, especially if that person's not taking ownership, but I feel Mm -hmm. like that's one way. Malik, that was such a fantastic answer. That's actually why I turned to you because I was like, <laughs> I was like girl, I'm going to let him go first because I know he's about to kill this. So I'm going to yes and that because that's exactly, you know, that truth and reconciliation, getting the truth out there and then being like, let's talk about it. But I'm going to uh, take that even further and being like, uh, before you even get that far, a work situation that changed my life for the better was my first week, my first day at Nancy Drew. Mm. Because before that, I had worked in a variety of rooms and I had dealt with some trauma. I had experienced some traumatizing situations. And so coming into Nancy Drew, I always joked that I was a little bit feral because I was like, (laughs) I'm not going back to prison. Please don't make me go. And Melinda and Noga brought in this incredible organizational counselor, instructor, Birgit. And one of the activities that she did for the group was about sort of identifying how we all respond to stressful situations, as well as instructing us on how we can make agreements with each other and how we are going to move forward with each other in high stress situations. Mm-hmm. And in that particular exercise, it was revealed to me and everyone else that the way I deal with high stress situations is by taking charge. Mm-hmm. Now, I am a, at the time, I was a mid-level writer, and that's, you know, writer's rooms can be very hierarchical, so you're not really supposed to take charge at that level. So I was embarrassed because I was like, I didn't realize, I didn't want you all to see me yet. I didn't want you all to see how big I I truly am. I'm, I'm so used to having to hide and make myself small so as not to be intimidating, mm. aggressive, mm. angry, scary, because, you know, I'm a black lady for those who can't see me. Um, <laughs> and so... I, I I shared that at the end of the day. I was like, I'm actually a little anxious because I didn't realize that I didn't want to be seen as I truly am. And Birgit said, everyone, can we make an agreement with Andrea right here and now that she can be as big as she truly is? Mm-hmm. And everybody in that room looked at me and said, yes, we agree. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. Like it let me know, one, that like I am who I am and I should not have to apologize for that in a professional context, but also that I can work in a place that not only accepts who I am, but values it. And appreciates it. And I always felt so valued, appreciated, and seen in that room. And I say all that to say, it's also how you begin. 
It's also how you, the intention that you set forth with your writer's room or with whatever, you know, your crew, whatever Mm -hmm. the organizational structure is, being like on day one, this is how we do things here. And to go back to Malik's point to say, okay, in instances where there is harm, whether intended or not, this is how we will proceed. These are Mm -hmm. our rules. So that when we call each other in, we have a standard, we have a structure in place so that nobody's scared about what's going to happen. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 this is not... You're not in danger. Right. Like you're not going to be like, you know, yelled at or castigated. This is how we call each other in mm-hmm. and then we decide to move forward as a team. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's so important and I wish that were done more often. All this to say, I think that it's really valuable to have the agreements in place before anybody steps into the room. And, you know, when a new person comes into an existing environment, it would be so great if everybody had a little reset. Here's how we talk to each other. When we don't meet that standard, here is how we proceed. As a group, and you're not going to get in trouble for saying that had an impact on me. But it's so important to say out loud that happened because I've been in situations where people denied that it happened, where they would say to my face, it didn't happen, or where we all collectively were silent. And that's so enraging and, you know, saddening. After a while, your soul just gets crushed by that. Mm. You just feel like, well, what's the point of saying anything? This is just how it is. It must be something wrong with me, because that didn't make any sense. So it must have been something I didn't do right. That's, you know, the window of my psyche is opening (laughs) right now. But that gives one possible interpretation, depending on how your childhood went. But it's also like when people apologize and don't really acknowledge that they did a thing, the apology doesn't feel sincere, and it it also feels like an insult when they're kind of like, I'm so sorry you felt that way. I had no idea that that happened to you. (laughs) (laughs) I I deeply regret that that was the environment that you felt was in place, and I'm really shocked as you are. But I had these other things going on, but this was the situation for me at that time, or I wish you wouldn't take it that way. So all of these things, none of those words that I just said have an apology where it's like, I did a thing to you, and it impacted you in a way that was bad, and I'm sorry. And leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Try that out. Just say that you messed up, acknowledge what happened, acknowledge what the impact was, and say you're sorry. And then wait. Wait in silence. Wait in the most uncomfortable silence of your life for the other person to really take that in and let them have the next word and maybe the final word in that conversation. One just quick thing with your story, Melinda, that I was thinking about, when, and Andrea made the great point about like, it starts in the beginning and creating, almost laying out the agreement is a piece about like creating these systems, which I think we were great at doing at Nancy Do, where you almost had buddies. But really it's about like having allies, having advocates, because sometimes I found that in my other role where I've become like, even though I am senior there, I'm still not like, I'm not my boss. So, but I've still become the person that like is comfortable speaking up to my boss on behalf of other people in the office, whether it's because the dynamics of maybe they're a younger woman and my boss is an older white man and they feel like he looks down on them or they won't, he won't hear their feedback the same way. But just having someone else who can vocalize that sometimes is really helpful to lay that out in the beginning because it allows for that, not to say, you know, not knowing everything, but maybe if that person was able to then tell someone else who then was able to relay to the boss, it would have helped you know, mm-hmm. remedy that situation. Right. Totally agree. Andrea, back to the picket lines. The last time you and I were picketing, you had a great idea, I thought, which was that you know, folks who maybe have not been on their best behavior in the past, we're not even trying to ask them to be nicer, in quotes. We're asking them to do certain things differently. Yeah, kind of like, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I always say that 
So writer's rooms, it's, we always, you know, nothing in life is personal, but storytelling is inherently personal. Mm -hmm. You are harvesting from the depths of your being, from your experience, from your perspective on life. Sorry, that's a personal thing. So they are very delicate organisms. And I think that you have to treat them accordingly. um, And you have to create an environment where people feel valued, understood, appreciated, and and safe. Mm-hmm. Because that is when you will get the best work. People will walk on glass if they feel like they can trust you and that you have their back as a leader. And so my thing is always like, I feel like a sociopath could understand this. <laughs> like, you don't actually have to care. You don't even have to feel on the inside that you love and cherish these people. You have to, you have to keep it together. <laughs> For the hours you are with them and pretend because if you can just keep your stuff together for that amount of time and let the people who work for you feel valued, seen, and understood, Mm -hmm. they will do incredible work. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal, right? The goal is to do incredible work together. Now, if that's not your goal, if this is just a horrific power exercise for you to, you know, work out all of your demons, Mm. then, you know, that intention will fulfill itself, unfortunately. But for those of us in this industry, and I think that there are more than not who truly want to tell good stories that people connect with and people love, it is just as simple as making, when you are in a leadership position, making everyone who answers to you feel like this is a leader who I will do my best work for. And some of that, I love that, thank you. Some of that is as simple as nodding and looking people in the eye and saying, uh-huh, when yeah. they've done the thing that you asked them to do. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. There's that. Acknowledge that they did a thing that you asked them to do. It doesn't have to be like a high five or a big smile. Just, uh-huh. Look them in the eye and notice that they completed the task. Also, if there's something that is kind of like, I don't know, delicate to them, just be aware of that and just give them a little bit of grace around that. Like try to be curious and ask questions about, it feels like that didn't land the way I thought it did. Like it's okay to say, did I just make a misstep? Please tell me now. You know, I, if you're like reading faces on a Zoom or you're reading faces around the room, take a second, take an extra second to notice how your words land. Because I think some leaders like to grandstand and monologue and they're not really interested in how their words land. Mm-hmm. But that's so important when you want other people to feel like you're hearing them and valuing their presence. Other things, just off the top of my head, start on time, end on time when you have meetings. You know, If you receive an email, say, I am in receipt of your email. <laughs> if you are asked mm. a question, give them an answer as to whether you have the answer or whether you are knowing when you can get them the answer. And don't just ignore it, especially if you're feeling like you're insecure about not having the answer. The best thing you can do is say, I don't have that answer yet. Let me look into it. At least they'll feel like, oh, they didn't ignore me, or maybe I should send a follow-up email, or I'm waiting in limbo. I don't have any idea when this thing's going to get solved, that I need to get solved. There are these other sorts of metrics, and we don't have time to go into them today, but I feel like if as a leader and as a group, this would be so great, with your team, say, what are the things that are important to us as a team? Mm -hmm. And make a list of them, and how would that manifest? What does that look like when somebody feels seen? It's like, I feel like, you know, it's important that we recognize a variety of winter holidays. There's not just Christmas out there, folks, you know, or when somebody feels valued. It's like, it really helps me a lot when you say, thank you for writing on the board so neatly and we never have to correct any of your spelling. I don't know, just like little things. But the other thing that comes to mind was a TED Talk I heard about police brutality, of all things, but 
They were not trying to get people to feel less racist in their hearts. They were trying to get people to stop using chokeholds, to not pull their gun right away. They were trying to get people to engage from a distance of 20 feet or more and talk for a while before escalating. They were trying to get people to Mm de-escalate. So there were all these metrics that people could hit. No matter what the feelings in their heart were, they could perform better along these metrics. So that's one way to look at it. The other thing that is a very sticky problem is how to hold people accountable. Let's say we have all these conversations and everybody has really good intentions and then there's somebody just doesn't do it, doesn't do the thing. How do we hold each other accountable? And I, I love, you know, the idea of having ombuds people and HR folks who can come in and, and help, but so often HR is seen as the enemy or seen as just hiding, you know, corporate malfeasance and <laughs> and people generally don't trust HR, which I think is unfortunate because I've worked with a lot of really terrific HR people who have helped. But amongst ourselves, what do you think? The floor is open for pitches. How do we hold each other accountable? It's a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of having that structure in place to call people in and to be like, hey, this is happening, to give them kind of, I think it's called like a performing a performance enhancement plan in like other industries, but just a means of like, this is how we would like, we would all like things to go moving forward, to give them an opportunity to do that. And if that's if that isn't working, to try to check in with them one more time and then to sort of have a tough conversation about like, is there a harm being done here that is outweighing mm. um, any value, any any contribution? Because if more harm is being done that's damaging to the entire organism, you have to take that into account for the health of the organism. Mm-hmm. That's true. Malik, what do you think? I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's that piece about I mean, the greater good. But just thinking about, like, you know, we've we've created this space and we've laid out, you know, almost created this manifesto, this agreement of how we're going to conduct ourselves. And if you're basically breaking away from that, in some ways you're already basically choosing to not continue to, like, participate and be a part of this organization, this goal that we're working toward. And in that sense, it's like, why is that happening? And maybe there's extenuating circumstances, there's something to be farmed or figured out from that. But at a certain point, it's like part of agreeing to this or saying, like, we're going to stay in this space or we're going to work toward this is saying that you're almost signing up for that. Mm -hmm. You're almost accepting that, like, okay, I'm going to work toward this. And then if I fail or if I don't rise to that occasion then there will be consequences. Right. Yeah, the idea of consequences, again, we probably don't have time to talk about that, but I I do feel like people respond to consequences. They don't always have to be bad consequences, Mm -hmm. you know? There's a lot to be said for positive reinforcement, and a therapist told me, catch your kids being good, you know, where it's Mm -hmm. like you see something that you like and say, that's awesome. I love how you reached Mm -hmm. out to your colleague and, and helped them through that moment. Or even to the leader, like, I love how you run this meeting so on time. I'm really learning a lot from you. People do respond to that. You know, they're not immune to, I don't want to say flattery, but they're not immune to positive reinforcement. And that's good for everybody, the feedback loop. I think that, you know, another thing that happens, this is a slightly different problem, is when you have somebody who's in a position of great power, let's say a star actor. And I've not worked with anyone like this recently. But (laughs) let's say you worked with a very big star, and they were known for being a bully, and they were sort to yell at you in the morning and give you a big hug after lunch. And it feels so good because you're like, oh, they like me, you know? But then it happens again the next day, and you know that you're in this pattern of an abusive relationship, really. It's truly an abusive relationship where, you know, they bring you close enough to punch you in the face. And how do we shift that behavior? I, again, don't have the magic answer for that. So I would love your thoughts. How do we shift that kind of pattern? 
Oh man. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I just thought I'd ask. Just asking These for a friend such here. Great question. Because it's one thing when you have enough agency in the situation mm-hmm. to really impact other people's behavior, but like when it is the showrunner who's behaving that way, or when it is the star actor who's behaving that way, it's a different ball game. Mm-hmm. When you're sort of stuck with that person, it, it, it's kind of like. I don't want to call it a hostage situation, (laughs) but you really do have to sort of start uh, weighing, okay, like you said, Melinda, like, let's try to encourage the good behavior. And for the bad behavior, let's try to get some boundaries in place. Mm -hmm. Because I think you can try to talk to a person like that and be like, hi, this is the damage being done. Can we readjust? But I have observed more often than not, they're not going to because they've got their own stuff going on that has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with anyone there. Mm -hmm. So I think in that situation, it's about harm reduction Mm. and putting proper boundaries in place, you know, to protect people who cannot stick up for themselves. You know, Malik was talking about that earlier, or even to protect yourself and, and saying like finding when they are yelling at you, like, let's come back to this later. Mm. I don't, I don't want to be spoken to that way. Mm -hmm. Um, this is not the most effective form of communication Mm -hmm. and just trying to basically like, if somebody's yelling in my face more than once, I'm (laughs) We gonna put a stop to that one way or the other. We're putting hands on, right? I'm just, just like, no, you know. So we're gonna have to figure out a way to make this work as long as we mm-hmm. both are here working together. Mm-hmm. Because uh, no, that should not be the norm. That should not be like, oh, that's what that person does. Mm-hmm. And if they get enough pushback, mm-hmm. one of two things is gonna happen: either they're going to adjust, and that can be a, a not great adjustment. That can be them being shut down and pouty all the time, which honestly I'll take <laughs> over yelling as long as they're doing their job. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you will be removed or they'll be removed mm-hmm. and the whole thing will be over. But uh, it, to me, either of those is better than being demoralized mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say something mm-hmm. real quick. Yeah. Just that vocalizing, because I think like I think we haven't had that situation, but I think no one wants to be the villain. No one wants to be seen as a bad guy, mm-hmm. the bad person. And right. I think to really hear like what you're doing right now is affecting me like this and has a real impact mm-hmm. will at least make that person second guess or at least puts it out there, mm-hmm. especially if it's done in a public setting, and then at least can maybe then build the steps toward, you know, extracting yourself or the person from the situation, but at the right. very least let's lay it out there that this is not okay, that this behavior is not okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think in our industry, that even that piece very rarely happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone says, that wasn't okay. Yeah, exactly. That happened <laughs> and it wasn't okay. I think that, uh, you know, another kind of ancillary pro tip about these sorts of situations, to the extent that you can calm yourself down before speaking, mm. you know, it's really helpful. If you, you know, this is a parenting thing also. It's like if you say, <laughs> I need a second before I can respond to that. And you walk away for 10 seconds and then you come back a little bit calmer. If that's possible, that's great. If you're in a very time-sensitive thing, you can try to consciously lower the tone of your voice, like mm. speak more and more quietly. I learned this tip from somebody who had worked with like telephone operators or you know, people who you get on the phone and you're complaining about a thing, and they're just like quieter and quieter and more and more reasonable, you know, and kind of like, uh-huh, you know. And not escalating the confrontation vocally or in your body language can help you. And it's frustrating that the onus has to be on us who are receiving the bad behavior, but this is how it is. So if you can de-escalate your own body language and heartbeat to the extent you can, the <laughs> tone of your voice, that's really helpful. And also to remind yourself just internally this behavior makes no sense, but it's not about me, you mm-hmm. know, because whatever training you may have received as a child, again, the window of my psyche <laughs> opening, it's kind of like you have to remember that they're acting on habits that have gotten them stuff in the past. 
And if you can be one of the people to break that cycle for them, they'll realize that with you, you're not going to melt into their hug in the afternoon after lunch. You know, if you just kind of like, if you didn't give them the little thing that they're looking for, because that's part of their behavior also. It's like, I yell at them in the morning and then I hug them after lunch and we both feel good. And if they hug you after lunch and you don't give back the good feeling, they're not going to get that hit that they're looking for. Um, my therapist told me this interesting um, scientific experience that they did. They can't do this anymore because it's cruel to the rats. But <laughs> they were like, Poor you know, rats. put rats in a thing of water. How long will the rats keep swimming until they drown? And you can see why they don't do this experiment anymore. But imagine these rats swimming, swimming, swimming. And then if you take the rat out and give it a little break, then it'll go back to swimming so vigorously. Like, you know, it's been a total reset. Just that little break, that hope of like, oh, it got better for a second if I swim, if I keep swimming. So don't be the rat who keeps swimming is what I'm trying to say here. Just let me die. Just, just, no, what just I'm drown. saying is, no. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you should refuse to go into the water. <laughs> oh. Yes. Easier said than done when you need the job, when you're, you know, not that high on the food chain, when you really respect this actor and think that they do good work on the show and the show exists because they signed on as an executive producer. It's not like you can go up and, and you know, speak full truth at the top of your voice right away. You've got to find other ways to do it, which is unfortunate, but it is also, I think, kind of where we are. I think that's about all we have time for today, but I thank you so much for coming in and being honest and vulnerable and candid about what you've seen and what you think could be better. This has been Lead with Kindness, the podcast about how leading with kindness is not only easy and doable, but essential in having a better business results and a better quality of life. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Please come back for our next episode when I speak with two good friends who are also the co-creators and showrunners and executive producers of Nancy Drew and Tom Swift, Noga Landau and Cameron Johnson. And it was my great pleasure to work with them in creating a writer's room culture that we were all really proud of. Because not only did people come and do their best work, but in the words of St. Exupery, we didn't teach them how to be shipbuilders by teaching them how to hammer a nail. We taught them to love the sea. 